Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing? I'm great, Faisal. How about you? I'm good. I had a very interesting day on Thursday. Mm-hmm. I think it was Thursday. Mm-hmm. I uh, got the results of my fitness test. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, we have a health bucket. And we always talk about getting your own personalized health plan and then seeing how that impacts any costs in the future you may need because of your health and yep. so forth. Yep. And so uh, this was my uh, time to get my health plan done at the beginning of the year. I do it every year and got my, uh, my health assessment. And it says, I'm a beast. Beast. Yeah, and then I look closer and it says, you're obese. <laughs> and so that wasn't very fun. <laughs> it's, it's amazing though, hey, like obese. You're clearly, if somebody looks at you, you're not obese. Well, no, I'm not obese. Just, <laughs> I'm healthy. I'm in very good shape according to the results. But it was, but there's, you know, it's, it's like a financial plan. Mm-hmm. When I was looking at this, like, okay, here's the areas you're doing well. And here's the areas of opportunity for you. And right. I use that word, right? it's opportunity, right? right? Um, and so you're on the line for certain things like cholesterol. You just take a couple of omega-3s every single day. If you thought, well, go back down, you have nothing. Like small yeah. incremental changes yeah. will result to big uh, differences yeah. in the future, according to them. And that's very similar to what we in our industry do to our clients. Say, sure. okay, little small things you can do here, like, I don't know, invest for the long term. Mm-hmm. Will give you humongous results. Do not try to time the market. With all this volatility happening, we tell clients, we tell our viewers and listeners, don't try to time it. It's time in the market, not timing the market. So it was a very uh, interesting week from a personal fi- uh, fitness perspective. And what we're seeing in the markets is, you know, those small steps, like little things, like just you, you have you have the right structure and discipline. Yeah. You have the right buckets yep. in your retirement. There's a portion of your buckets you don't have to sell because of a short-term issue. Yeah, and you know, when you're talking about health also, you see these things, and it's kind of the, the diet thing. Everybody's been through that at some point, right? You try to react immediately and make these massive changes. Uh, you know, it's questionable whether they're sustainable, whether you injure yourself. There's all kinds of problems that come out of making those immediate rash, um, sort of rash big changes. And it, you know, we're seeing that in the, in the markets right now, yep. right? And um, it is causing people to think. We're going to talk about inflation today. We're going to try to get a sense of, uh, of inflation and interest rates. We're going to go straight to the bond market to find out what do they see, right? Because the bond market is often the greatest um, uh, economist of all. It will dictate often trading action. So we want to find out about what's going on there. But ultimately, we also want to talk about strategy, yeah. right? And strategy implies something not just a diet fad. It Im- it's a little bit longer. We get there's going to be some ups and downs, and how do you navigate through those things? Yeah. So I'll go back to my fitness assessment. Now, there was like four different parts. Yep. One was the actual blood work and so forth, and what is that, that stuff does for you. Number two was the dietary check and see what you're eating or what you should be eating and how you can adjust that. The third part of it is, uh, is the fitness assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt I was in a combine for trying out for the NFL. <laughs> what was your vertical? Uh, oh, oh, I should have brought my book. Four or five inches. They were quite. They were quite surprised <laughs> for for a vertically challenged individual like myself. They were quite surprised. Okay, good. That I could jump. I just put a picture of, of you at the top of the 
of, of the bars and I actually was able to slap your face so well. It was great. So that, that helped. So the fitness side. And the last one, of course, was a was more of a mental health uh, side yep. of things as well. So when you look at these different parts, one is predictive of the other. Right. When you look at the mental health side of things and how you see things, how you react to things, how you handle stress, will dictate your diet potentially, will dictate when you work out, when you don't work out, or why you work out, will also dictate your other levels when you're doing. So it's the bond market, very similar to the mental health of the economy. Right. It kind of predicts what's going to happen or what is happening at this point in time. Right. If this continues, if interest rates continually move in this direction, um, especially if we get faster, shorter term interest rates, less than two years, you start call flattening the yield curve. That's an indication that we're getting closer and closer to that big R word yep. recession. Yep. As you steepen that, which means the 10 years way higher than the, the two year, that steepening of the curve means there's a less probability of a recession. Right. And I don't recall in history when there was a, a steepening of the yield curve and a recession. Right. So it's nice to see that the mental health of the economy is the bond market. And everything we see in the stock market and the currency market comes from those other areas of that fitness assessment that we had to do. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, it's been an interesting um, week of trading um, in a number of facets, but certainly, you know, we had, um, towards the end of the week phase, I found very interesting the action we would have the dip buyers. So for 18 months. At least 18 months. Right. Yeah. Markets dip and quite shallow, right? Five percentage. You see money pouring in. We call those the dip buyers. Yeah. Okay. And so um, during this week, we started two days of the week pretty strong because dip buyers were coming in and, and, uh, and bidding up some of the stocks that had been beaten down, including the technology stocks. And then the rally sellers came in literally in the last hour of the day and they pounded the markets down. And uh, sort, of, sort of fascinating. Now, those things were happening while the bond market was actually pretty quiet. Yeah. No major moves. Right. So there's, you've got lots of, what it tells you is there's lots of people thinking, repositioning, trying to figure out what that future path is going to be, and particularly ahead of some major bank announcements next week, like central bank announcements. Let's go back six, seven months when interest rates started to rise and go up to that 1.7%, come back down on the 10-year U.S. Treasury. That was a sign of what we in the mental health world call anxiety. And when you have a lot of anxiety, Dave, what happens to your diet? Well, you know, what happens to your diet specifically, mm. Mr. Popovich, when anxiety and stress goes up, for some reason, the milkshake industry does so well. Mm -hmm. Chocolate gets introduced. Yep. For sure. Price of cocoa goes up because <laughs> of Popovich. And you look at the markets, it was a sell-off. The anxiety right. of the bond market trickles over the mental health. Yep. Trickles over. And the reaction yep. is to sell. Right. And so... I find right now what's interesting is we haven't seen major panic yet. It's coming. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing sell-off in certain sectors that you and I talked about the junk rally this time last year yep. are now being sold off 60-70%. We're starting to see some good quality companies yep. start to sell a bit, yep. especially in growthier names. Right. But we're not seeing a big rush to value. No, and um, no, you're you're correct, right? It's still, I'd say, reasonably balanced. It's a cyclical rotation. Mm -hmm. When we look at some of the sectors, and we talked about this mm -hmm. last week, energy, financials. Mm -hmm. Well, financials didn't do so good this week, right? 
especially quite, the U.S. And, and quite frankly, we saw energy again selling off, despite the fact that we've got numerous geopolitical issues. Yeah, and no, a number of houses, uh, uh, investment houses, calling for triple-digit numbers on oil again. Right. So it's in, so the question that that the markets will try to have to answer next week and the week after right. is why? Why do we continue to sell? When there hasn't been a major catastrophic event in oil, there hasn't been a major catastrophic event in companies in the financials in the U.S. Some of these financial companies in the U.S. have done equal to or better than the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. Right. Okay. Yet they're they're about 20% cheaper in valuation. Right. Why are they not being gobbled up? Right. And if interest rates are rising, don't banks make more money? Right. Yeah. So why is people not... Investors not buying this so quickly. That's going to be the answer is probably going to be made in the next two weeks, I believe. Yeah. Because we are hitting a peak of the of the variant, and then we're going to slowly open, right. and that's when things are going to change. As soon as you start to see, and my prediction is, watch what happens after Super Bowl. Right. After Super Bowl, it will probably give us a different indication uh, that you know we've opened up. Look at how that big, the biggest event probably in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then we're getting closer to the Olympics, which is going to be a different perspective of it right. with being in China. Yeah. Very interesting moves are going to happen, I think, over the next couple of weeks. I'm interested to see how the investors react, and I want to see who actually capitulates, who sells out. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting. Okay, there's your prediction. The fact is we get a Super Bowl every single year, and people are retired for longer than just this one-year period, right? Yeah. The next three months, I'm not saying are unimportant, but in a 35-year retirement, is only one of the things you have to overcome. Faisal, we're getting a lot of questions. Obviously, inflation is, is the headline. Everybody is focused on this. And one of the obvious questions with, with uh, interest rates poised to start moving and continue to move over the next couple of years, what happens to the fixed income piece of your portfolio? Yeah, so our guest and yourself have um, well, at least one thing in common, which is both of you are, are fixed income I would call you guys enjoy enjoy the bond market. I'm yeah. I'm not in as enthusiastic about it, but what I do know about the bond market, Dave, is that that is the signal to what's happening in the economy and what's going to happen in the yeah. stock market. Yeah. Um, and so it is nice to say um, maybe you guys in the fixed income world can kind of give us the tea leaves of what's <laughs> going to happen. And so I'd like to bug you that yeah, the stock market can take company down companies down. But the bond market takes countries down. Fair right? enough. That's how important it F- is. So. Fair enough. So I think this is an opportunity for us to understand what's what's happened and what is happening in the in the fixed mm-hmm. income world. And if if you listen and actually read between the lines of what our guests will be talking about, you'll get an indication of what's going to happen in the equity market. That's why I love having this guest come on, reoccurring guest of ours. Yeah. Let's introduce him. Yeah. So Chuck Holmes is back with us. He's a director, associate portfolio manager of the uh, Global Multi-Sector Fixed Income Fund at Manulife. Um, Chuck, you're part of a, a, a big team. Uh, say hi to the whole gang for us. We're glad to have you back on, particularly at this point in time, because we're getting lots of questions, as you can imagine, from investors about, about inflation, about interest rates, and about whether or not fixed income actually is, should be part of a portfolio, uh, you know, given this current economic environment. So we've got lots to tackle. I know you're here with us for two segments. So let's focus on this segment. I'd love to get sort of your macro take and maybe just help us understand from a, from a bond world perspective, what's happening in inflation and interest rates and what are your expectations? 
Yeah, and first off, thank you again for taking the time and, and allowing us to join on behalf of myself and the entire team. We, we hope in the near future we can see you guys very soon and do this in person. And, and when you think about kind of the macro outlook, that's kind of the way we're looking about the world as well, where we do believe we are continuing to move to the other side of this pandemic. It's a slower process than maybe some people thought at certain points in time over the past couple of years. But we still do believe that you're going to continue to move on to the other side of this pandemic, and that will continue to allow the global reopening story to take hold. So what that means is we do believe you're going to see growth continuing to grind in a positive direction for the near term. And that will also coincide with inflationary pressures that will be higher than what historically you would see but we don't believe it is a massive runaway inflationary environment. So what we're seeing is growth is moving up, inflation's a little more sticky, especially in certain parts of the economy than a lot of the central banks were thinking uh, early on, but that is causing the central banks to start to look to move away from the ultra accommodative policies that they've had set in place for the past couple of years. So starting to take away some of the, the you know, unprecedented liquidity that has been driven into the system, starting to move towards a more normalization type of stance for their policies. Now I say move towards because we think it's gonna take some time to get there. So it is something that we need to be mindful of. And as we look at some of the drivers of inflationary pressures that we are seeing, we do believe some of those will start to subside as the global reopening story takes hold. So more to the latter half of next year, but there are other parts, um, mainly in uh, wage pressures that could be a little bit more sticky and you need to be mindful of those. But all in, we see the environment as one that it is still we are, we would like to say cautiously optimistic where we feel things are moving in the right direction, but you do need to ensure that you know what risk you're taking because as you move forward, there could be some differences in terms of performance within certain parts of global fixed income. And you wanna make sure, especially in a low yield environment like we're in today, where yields are potentially grinding higher, Capital preservation is about most importance, just like it always is. But in this environment, you really need to ensure because of the low yield environment, you don't have as much cushion to protect against any drawdowns. So you need to be focused on capital preservation. And if you're able to protect that capital, it makes it that much easier to generate um, a strong return in fixed income going forward. Chuck, when we look at 2021, there was an acronym that was used called TINA, which stands for There Is No Alternative and they're referring to the stock market uh, in that case. When we look at the fixed income uh, returns around the world, most if not all were negative rates of return. Um, your portfolio that we've been working with you on for, oh, it seems like decades now yep. practically, um, has, has done quite well relative versus the, uh, uh, the benchmarks and your peers. What was the success story for you guys last year, even though we didn't have, you know, uh, we didn't shoot the lights out uh, in the fixed income world last year anywhere. But, but it, it was more of it was better than the 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 bunch. It was better than the rest. It was better than the index. What was the reason for the success, and what was the reason why we it was so challenging last year for fixed income managers in general to receive a positive rate of return? 
Yeah. So when you kind of think about last year, what occurred was you saw, you know, high quality government bond yields grinding higher. You came into last year with spreads, whether it was in corporate bonds or whether it was in. Um, so when you think about kind of what happened last year with um, spreads being fairly tight, you did get some spread compression over the course of the year. But what you did see kind of what occurred last year was the interest rate sensitivity, which was something we felt people really needed to be mindful of because what has occurred over the past you know, decade, two decades, even three decades has been high quality government bond yields have continued to come down over time. And what happened with that was the amount of duration or sensitivity to changes in interest rates become became even that much larger. So the high quality indices or high quality fixed income globally was that much more had that much more potential to be pretty pretty impacted by very small moves in any changes of interest rates and you did see that occur then you also had um, different times of the year where high yield spreads came down they were they were very tight as i mentioned the risk-free part the high quality five-year treasury yield which it's based off of came came down so the all-in yield on high yield was very low and it also caused the prices to go up pretty substantially and in a lot of cases we we're looking at what is the risk reward because we do believe we are risk managers first and foremost and yeah. that capital preservation thing i talked about earlier that was evident last year as well so what you did see as we moved through the course of the summer was starting to trim down um some of our positions in the areas we we felt risk reward was now tilted to the downside giving an example was in high yield in the middle of the summer we had 38 percent in us high yields so that performed well over the beginning of the year and it all in over the course of the entire year when you look at it it performed um reasonably well especially relative to other parts of global fixed income but it wasn't a straight line what you did see in the middle of the summer, and this was right before you had the Delta variant come out, was some of these bonds trading at 104, 105, and they do have the ability to be called. The vast majority of high yield bonds have the ability to be called at 101. And in a lot of cases, this was within the next 12 to 18 months. So for us, we felt, well, best case scenario, the bond price goes from 105 down to 101 as it gets closer to its call date, or something goes bad and it is a credit event now it doesn't go to 101 it drops far below that as the market starts pricing in that default risk so for us we just felt the risk awarded next you're not going to see too much more capital appreciation or upside the all-in yield wasn't as attractive as it once was so we exited those positions and we we're in a unique opportunity to move that call it nine percent from us fixed rate high yield to leverage loans. Because at that period of time, what we were finding was you could go double B high yield to double B loans, or even in some cases, single B high yield to double B loans, where it was similar credit quality. We were now taking on less interest rate risk because loans had a duration of, call it a quarter of a year versus high yield being closer to four years um, on a broad-based index level. And we were able to get commensurate yield, if not pick up 
yields by making this change. So for us, it made complete sense to do it. And we felt you'd see less volatility because we were buying these leveraged loans at 99, 99 and a half, $100 because they were coming out at new issue. The bond market's big. There's lots of different things happening. How do we take advantage of it in this environment? Here's what happens with the average investor out there. Dave, the interest rates are going up. We can't make money in bonds. Get out, go buy something else, okay? Then you ask them the question, well, what bonds are you talking about? And they're like, bonds. Yeah. They, they don't narrow it down to a certain, like, is it government bonds? Right. Like, where, where which GICs, government? What, what, what is, is it, it? right? Yeah. So there's so many options out there to invest in the fixed income world more than there is options to invest in the equity world. Right. I think investors need to understand that. So that's that's fixed income 101 for yep. all of our listeners and viewers today. But let's start talking about what the bond market is saying today. And Chuck, when you look at where everything is laid out from fixed income what and the and the ideas of interest rate increases maybe three, four, five, we've heard from some analysts out there in the US, I'm referring to the US Treasury. Um, what is the bond market saying to you today about interest rates and inflation? So when you look at it, you're right. The market has moved to price in more rate hikes by central banks, not only in the U.S., but around the world. You're seeing it as well in Canada. And that is important. It means that the central bank is going to be looking to increase the short end um, of the yield curve and looking at taking some of that enormous uh, amount of liquidity that they pumped in the system starting to take it away. So you can look at it two ways. One, they feel confident enough that the underlying growth picture is going to look okay, that it will be able to absorb these rate hikes. And two, that they don't want to get caught behind the curve where there is a little more inflationary pressures out there than they initially thought. So that's why they're moving faster and the market is pricing in a quicker response where central banks will hike rates sooner than maybe we thought at this point last year, right? It's always changing as new information is made available. Chuck, let me just jump in there. Do you agree with the way the market is pricing it? Do you think that this is gonna be a faster increase in interest rates by the US Fed? Or do you think it's gonna be a bit slower because they've got other tools in their tool belt that they can use? So time will tell. I think when you look at it right now, the market's pricing in over four rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. And that's as of today. I think that's priced to perfection for this year. And that would be outside some um, event that occurs that you see wage pressures start to increase significantly, even from the elevated levels we're already seeing right now. So that's something we're watching to change our view. So when we look at it over four rate hikes, we feel maybe that's a little too much priced in by the market. Four rate hikes is probably fair value. And if there is any changes in terms of economic data, et cetera, then you could see the market look to reprice um, those risks, broadly speaking. And based on what you're seeing in the fixed income world, are you seeing that that inflation is gonna be, um, are we peaking inflation is the better question, or do you think it's gonna still be higher four percent plus in canada higher than that in the u.s uh what are your thoughts when it comes to inflation for the next call it 12 months out yeah so i think as you get into the second half of this year you will start to see inflation start to subside it is going to be more elevated than what the historical averages would be but central bankers have said they're okay with that so they're going to be continuing to move towards a normalization over time but 
ultimately, we don't believe inflation is going to continue to run away. The only caveat I will say is that that's with the view that the re global reopening story is going to continue to take hold as we move forward into the latter stages of this year. And that will allow some of those supply chain issues that's helping drive some of this inflationary pressure that will allow those to subside and it'll fix some of the supply chain issues over time. With these rising interest rates, Chuck, uh, one thing that comes to my mind is that it's going to be an impact to other parts of around the world. Emerging markets, the first thing that comes to my mind that will be impacted negatively, I think, with rising interest rates um, um, in the U.S. versus emerging markets. How does it impact there? And what are your thoughts of how will it impact in Canada? Because I get I, I'm, the closest I can get to a crystal ball when it comes to the markets, Dave, is talking to these guys mm -hmm. and and the wondering what's going on in the fixed income world. So I can look at that and say, this is what we're going to do on the, on the equity side. Yeah. So uh, be my crystal ball. What are you seeing when it comes to rising interest rates? How will it impact emerging markets? How will it impact countries like Europe and Canada? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is when you're looking at the emerging markets, it's really being selective and don't paint a broad brush. Because as U.S. yields start to increase, there's certain emerging markets that have U.S. dollar liabilities where they have debt denominated in U.S. dollars, right? So that could have a very large impact. Then some other economies have more debt that's denominated in local currency. Why that's important, delineation between the two, is when you're looking at the global reopening story taking hold and some of these economies that could benefit more from growth which would also potentially benefit their local currency and that can help offset some of the negative duration impact to total return that you could see so it's really about the differentiation also looking at what the country's underlying fundamentals are and what drives those fundamentals Certain emerging markets are more driven by one thing, while others are much more driven by other variables. So there is going to be a differentiation in terms of fundamentals between emerging markets. But we think, uh, especially going forward in this year, you're going to see a massive differentiation in terms of performance during different economies within the emerging markets. For the developed markets, some of the, the other major ones, you need to really look at protecting against interest rate risk. And we're very fortunate that we do have many different tools in our toolbox that we can utilize to protect against interest rate risk. We did utilize some of those last year. We're utilizing even more of them now because even though we don't see 10-year U.S. Treasury yields or 10-year Canadian government bond yields go into 5% over the course of this year, a move from 180 to 185 where we stand today up to two or 2.25%, that can be still pretty impactful in terms of a negative return on a lot of these high quality fixed income indices. So we feel very fortunate that we can shorten duration, we can actually use futures from the short side, um, we can buy securities that do well in a rising rate environment, et cetera. And I think you do need to be selective, no matter if you're investing in the US, in Canada, in Europe, because all of those different economies will have different um, different return streams as yields start to increase over time as well. Can I ask the trillion dollar question? As long as it's how do you position in this environment? That's given exactly all that? what I'm going to ask. Fire away. Yeah. So how do you how do you position and make money in this market for 2022 in the fixed income world? And your expectations, Chuck. And we're not going to hold you to it, I know, but I just like to get directionally sort of what you guys are thinking about with that opportunity. 
Yeah, so when we look at it, first and foremost, as I mentioned, you want to protect against interest rate risk. So we have a duration that is much lower than a lot of the high quality fixed income indices where their duration is closer to eight years. Ours right now is closer to 3.75. And that could come down even more if we start to have the feeling you're going to see a more rapid increase in terms of how high yields are going to go. Um, secondly, we still feel, especially over the first half of this year, you can embrace credit risk, but you do need to be selective in doing so because valuations just aren't as attractive as they have been in prior periods, right? Spreads are still pretty tight, but when we look at it, we don't see defaults picking up massively. We don't see any significant risks from that aspect, but we could see some valuation risks where things are maybe a little bit overvalued, right? And you could see those prices come down. So we will embrace credit risk, but we're doing it with a more higher quality bank. When we have our high yield positions, we're much more heavily weighted towards double Bs, the highest quality high yields, and completely avoiding the lowest quality triple Cs. Then in investment grade, we are finding opportunities there as well, more in some of the triple Bs, looking at companies that maybe were downgraded from single A, double A after the pandemic, they moved down to triple B, but their underlying fundamentals are now moving in the right direction. And you could see those companies be upgraded over the next 12 to 18 months. So with that, you get a little bit of spread compression, but you still need to protect against the interest rate risk side. And we're very fortunate, as I mentioned, that we do have the tools to do so. Um, and then outside selective opportunities within the emerging markets. And then as we get into the second half of this year, we think that may become even a bigger opportunity depending on how things play out. But right now we have um, a little north of 15% in the emerging markets. And in some of these instances, the country like Indonesia, which is our largest holding within the emerging markets, where we're, it's an investment grade rated economy. You can get over six and a half percent yield on the local bonds. And we, when we look at it from a total return perspective, the currency is undervalued. And so you could see single high, um, high single digit returns over the course of this year if things play out the right way. So all in, when we look at it, our current yield on our portfolio is close to 3.75%. So that's our starting off point. And when we look at the drivers, we think spreads fairly stable to maybe slightly tighter so you can get a little capital appreciation if we do the right things over the course of this year from uh, the credit side. Um, so that increases the return profile. Currency, we don't see a massive contributor. We're more of the view that you want to protect against currency risk, especially the Canadian dollar versus US dollar, which we feel is going to be more range bound um, over the course of this year with more of a view that the Canadian dollar could actually strengthen a little bit from where we stand today. And then lastly, the interest rate risk side, which is the one area that could be a detractor because we do believe yields are gonna go higher. If you have any duration, even though we're protecting against it, that is a detractor from total return. So in short, I think you look at coupon plus or minus a little bit, depending how things play out um, for a return profile. Okay, doesn't sound like devastation. Um, Chuck, we have to leave it there. Uh, I appreciate that, giving us lots of color on that, and, um, and we look forward to having you back soon. Say hi to the whole gang for us. Thank you, guys. And as I mentioned, hopefully we can do this in person in the near future. As always, it's a pleasure. Been joined by Chuck Tomes. He's uh, director in the, uh, and one of the associate portfolio managers of the Global Multi-Sector Fixed Income Fund with Manulife. Can the um, retirement rules of thumb destroy somebody's <laughs> retirement? Yes.
This I'm was an interesting set of questions we had this week, uh, this past week at our at our seminar. You know, I, what was interesting about the webinar that we did uh, a, last week or week before, um, the questions that we're getting from the public on a regular basis. Uh, for those of you who haven't gone on uh, Pop Witch Carmeli Advisory Group social media, people ask us questions on that all the time. Um, one of them is, what's the rule of thumb? And one of them that came mm, out yeah. was this 4% rule. Right. The question they're really asking is, how much money can I live off of? Right. What's the income that I can take from my savings? Well, and secondly, we had a number of questions just to add to that. The rule of thumb, do I live off 70% of my pre-retirement income? Correct. Right, so these two things are connected for sure. So, so rule of thumb this, rule of thumb right. that. What, what's interesting is a lot of the rule of thumbs are created by people who are not retirement experts. Right. When you actually look at the way people structure their retirement, there is not only one way. <laughs> and these rules of thumb help people kind of conceptualize. That's what the intent was for. But people turn this into gospel. Right. Like somebody wrote the, uh, the, the holy book of retirement and it's in there. Thou shall only spend 4% of your money. Right. It's one of the commandments apparently. <laughs> right? That's not true. Right. That's not true. And nor is it true that you will live on 70% of your, of your pre-retirement income. income. or your pre-retirement right. income, yeah. It could be higher. We know lots of people that are doing things that they couldn't otherwise do in a tire. Correct. Some are lower. And some are lower. And, and, and this is where it becomes more personalized. Yeah. People's lifestyles are different. Right. If you're saving 30% of your money every single year, mm -hmm. then you are living off of 70% of your income. Mm -hmm. Then what's, what do you use that money for? Mm -hmm. How much of that money are you going to say, I'm not going to spend because I'm no longer working? Like if you and I never had to come to the office... You and I never had to do our job. How mm. much money do you really save? Or would you just allocate those dollars to something else that you would rather be doing with your time? Well, it's nothing I'd rather be doing than hanging out with you and at the office and yeah, working. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. be clear about oh, that. You, you are very good at lying today, <laughs> sir. <laughs> I should take CPP at 65, right? Rule of thumb, 65. Thumb. Is that true? So yeah, no, it's no, not. No, it's not true. What we're hearing is more and more mathematical evidence of deferring CPP and in many cases, old age security. But not always true. Yeah. Why? Because it's based on the goals and objectives that a family has, right? These decisions, we, you know, the answer, part of the answer is we talked about making these decisions and using these rules of thumb uh, in isolation to the big picture. Thank you. Right? Thank and, you. And there is the number one mistake. And I, I get that for convenience purposes or people are trying to gauge where they're at, these rules of thumb exist. I understand. Um, but please don't use a rule of thumb as a decision in isolation of all of the other things you're doing. Right? Because you may decide to take CPP early even though the math says you should defer it for some other set of personal reasons that you may have. Yeah. Right? Um, and vice versa. Again, how much should you spend? Maybe I want to front end it. Maybe I want to back end it. There's a whole bunch of variables. Yeah, exactly. Remember, there are four major issues, concerns um, that people have in retirement. Mm -hmm. Tax is on everything, so I'm not going to call it as a separate issue. But people have concerns about how am I going to receive income for the rest of my life in a tax efficient way? How am I going to grow my money so I can beat inflation? in a tax efficient way. How am I going to pay for my healthcare costs? And I want to leave some money behind for family. I don't want to give them gifts while I'm alive mm -hmm. or upon my death. 
Now, when you have those four different issues, you can't just have a rule of thumb to cover all those issues. Right. Right? Taking your Canadian pension plan early might give you more money in your legacy bucket because you want to leave more money behind. Right. Taking Canadian pension plan at 70 versus 65 mm -hmm. might give you more money in your health bucket. Right. Because you're receiving an increased amount by deferring your CPP. Right. So it all depends on the individual. There's these rules of thumb, this, I would say, article writing strategies do not always work. And that's where a retirement specialist is really needed in these types of situations. Because I'm telling you, people who are doing this by themselves, they are giving up lots of money on the table. Yep. They are reducing the probability of success of reaching all of their goals. Right. And the standard of def or definition of, re of success is, have I done this one thing, not can I do all the things? Yeah. Another question that we got, rule of thumb, don't take any money out of your registered accounts until you have to, right? In your 72nd year. And that may or may not be true, depending Correct. on your situation, because there's a tax component to that, right? Correct. How much taxable income do you have? And what are the other various sources of capital that you're drawing from in your retirement or income that you've got? What's interesting about this rule of thumb, Dave, is we have done calculations for our clients. And I think the, the jury is hung on this one mm. because we've seen, let's look at the last like four or five months that we've been, we've been crunching numbers for yep. clients. Yeah. I'd say half of them, the math works better if they take money out right away versus deferring to 72. In the other half, defer to 72. Yeah. Like it's pretty much split, but it's very interesting that it's not a rule of thumb now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's even if it were 50-50, it's not a coin toss that you want in retirement, right? Correct. Yeah, so it's, anyways, I, I, we don't want to beat a dead horse on this one, Faisal, but I, I, I thought this particular um, group of questions seemed to focus around that, and, and given that there was a, you know, there was a, a reasonably large population of people listening to it, I suspect that that's questions on everybody's mind. And you know what? We, we, we sure know that as the pandemic has dragged on, people are getting tired, right? Yeah. And people are now considering and or just saying, I'm done, right? I'm considering I'm retirement. Retire. I'm just, or I'm going to retire and now. And the complexity is a bit different now because they've got wealth. They've got um, thoughts of how they want to live their life in a pandemic world. Yeah. And they're trying to, what the vision will be once we open up and either this pandemic turns into an endemic or it's, it's mm -hmm. no longer a pandemic, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. There's one rule of thumb that is fading in the sunset that was raised that I think it still frustrates me when it was first talked about and it frustrates me more that people still are talking about it, but it's fading and it's going in the sunset. It's 100 minus your age equals the percent oh. you should have in... Fixed income. There you go. Um... Oh, sorry. In, you're going in 100 equity. minus 80. Uh, uh, your your age, age will be in equity. Should be in equity. Yeah. So in if equity, you're 65 years of age, yeah. then you should have 65% in bonds, 35% in equities. There you go. Congratulations. You're going to retire at 1.8% U.S. Treasury. Let's forget about currency for yeah. a second. Yeah. And if 65% of your money's in that and you're drawing on the 4% rule, tell me how it's going to work. Yeah.
Yeah, the math might get complicated there. So rule of thumb doesn't always match the other rule of thumb, which doesn't match another rule of thumb, which means, here we go, yeah. catastrophic issues. Right. You could run out of money. Structure, discipline, and a plan, right? It'll get Amen. you those answers. Okay, my friend, we've got to wrap it up. We do have another seminar coming up because we want to talk about the process to make sure you're just not applying rules of thumb. Yeah, we're going to solve all these problems when it comes to bulletproofing your retirement on February 22nd. That's Tuesday at 7 p.m. live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We'll look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.